Well, first thing I need to point out is, is Brent didn't want to tell you this morning I was going to speak because he figured you wouldn't show up. <laughs> so he tried to fool you, you know, just to get, get you going there and think that you're going to hear him. And then surprise, you lose. And uh, <laughs> that's the way it is. So good to see you. Uh, Teresa and I, well, I had planned flying to Houston on Tuesday morning. Scott and I were going to record uh, how to teach the book of Mark to somebody who's not a Christian. We really had prepared for it and we're looking forward to it and spending all week doing that. And, uh, and then uh, that changed. I was glad I didn't get there <laughs> at the wrong time. So we were already south of Atlanta on Monday after doing a weekend meeting and just figured, well, uh, it's only eight hours away. Let's, let's come down here. So that was, that was pretty good. If you open your Bibles to Ezekiel chapter 20, Ezekiel chapter 20, I truly believe that one of the most enjoyable parts of Bible study is when you're studying the Scriptures and something about the Scriptures surprise you and give you a picture of God that you never ever had seen before. And that's always one of those just, just really interesting and wonderful times. Uh, Teresa and I, if we ever watch a movie, she is always in the middle of the movie telling me how it's going to end. She is the great figure, her outer of a movie, and she thinks she always knows the ending, and unfortunately, most of the time, she ruins it for me. So it just tells me what it's going to be, and I'm like, don't say that. I'm not smart enough to figure this out, but uh, somehow she does. Well, that is the way Ezekiel 20 is for me. It was a text that I studied pretty much in detail earlier this year, and as I was studying it and got to the end, it totally shocked me. Not only was the story itself shocking, and things in the story that I did not know, but when I came to the end, it just blew me away. I I was absolutely amazed at what I was seeing about God that I completely did not expect. And it has uh, thrilled me ever since to go back over it and see it time and again. To set up Ezekiel, we need to keep in mind that we are at this point in Ezekiel, in 591 B.C. Ezekiel had gone into captivity during the, the biggest of the invasions of 597, at least in terms of how many people were taken captive. Five years later in 593, Ezekiel was called upon to begin to speak as a prophet to the people who were in exile. Sometimes we get the idea that the people in exile were kind of the good guys as opposed to the ones who were uh, destroyed and and these were the ones who were spared and saved and, and were really the lucky ones who went into captivity. Well, indeed, they were the more fortunate. But we must not get in our mind that they were in any way righteous before God. They were not. And Ezekiel continues to pound on them throughout this great prophecy about their stubbornness and their evil ways. However, Ezekiel, you might remember, is confined to his house. He is not allowed to go out and interact with the people as most would do. And so when the elders of Israel want to know something, they would tend to go to Ezekiel to his house and sit down with him and say, we would like to inquire of the Lord. This happens to be one of those occasions. And I want you to notice 
the great speech that God gives Ezekiel to give to these elders when they come to be able to speak before speak and inquire of the Lord. So notice with me just the first few verses here. In chapter 20, in the seventh year, in the fifth month, on the tenth day of the month, this would be 591 B.C., certain of the elders of Israel came to inquire of the Lord and sat before me, and the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, speak to the elders of Israel and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Is it to inquire of me that you come? As I live, declares the Lord God, I will not be inquired by you. Will you judge them, son of man? Will you judge them? Let them know the abominations of their fathers and say to them. Now, we just stop right there and just notice what God says. Here are these elders of Israel. And and I don't know about you, but when I read elders of Israel, I think, well, here's the best of the best. Here here is the the ones who, who truly are the leaders of Israel. They're the ones that are supposed to be the shepherds. And they've come. What a wonderful thing. They come to Ezekiel and say, we want to inquire the Lord. Well, what better thing could you have than that? And yet God replies, tell them this, Ezekiel. Will you come and be inquired of by me? Not so. I mean, God is angry that they've even come to ask anything about about their future before God, and now God is going to give this answer. And so God says to Ezekiel, here's what I want you to say to them, and you continue then in verse 5. Thus says the Lord God, On the day when I chose Israel, I swore to the offspring of the house of Jacob, making myself known to them in the land of Egypt. I swore to them, saying, I am the Lord your God. On that day I swore to them that I would bring them out of the land of Egypt into a land that I had searched out for them, a land flowing with milk and honey, the most glorious of all lands. Now here here is God, and you can see the setting. He goes all the way back, some near a thousand years almost, 900 years, goes all the way back to the time that God had, had come to them in the land of Egypt and told them that He was ready to bring them out. He had chosen the most glorious of all lands to bring them. And I went to them and said, here we go. One of the interesting things that I think sometimes we have missed, I know I have missed, and in your study of the Exodus... On Wednesday nights, you might have noted this, but it is interesting to me that when you read Exodus, I kind of always had in my mind that when the people cried out because of bondage, they cried out to God. But I never found that. (laughs) They cried out, but they didn't cry out to God. God saw their misery. God remembered His promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But these people aren't necessarily appealing to God. So God just goes back all these years and He says, I want to remind you of what I did when I came to deliver you out of the land. Now notice this. Here is what God said to them. Again, not covered in the book of Exodus. There then in verse um, verse 7... And I said to them, cast away the detestable things your eyes feast upon, every one of you, and do not defile yourselves with the idols of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. But they rebelled against me and were not willing to listen to me. None of them cast away the detestable things their eyes feasted on, nor did they forsake the idols of Egypt. 
Then I said I would pour out my wrath upon them and and spend my anger against them in the midst of the land of Egypt. Did you know that? Did you know that about God? Did you know that about the people of Israel while they were in Egypt? Here is God who shows up and sends Moses and says, I'm ready to deliver you. I'm going to take you out. I'm going to bring you this glorious land. Now here's what I want you to do. Get rid of all those idols in Egypt that you've been worshiping. I want you to get rid of those. I am the Lord your God. I'm going to deliver you. And what did the people do? Uh, No, we're not not going to get rid of them. And so God says that He is going to just pour His wrath out on them. Nothing that we read about in the book of Exodus indicates that this is what God was about to do, that He was going to destroy them even in the land of Egypt while they were still there. And yet notice the next text, verse 9. But I acted for the sake of my name, that it should not be profaned in the sight of the nations among whom they lived, in whose sight I made myself known to them in bringing them out of the land of Egypt. So here is God delivering Israel out of Egypt, even though He said, I was ready to destroy them. And why does He do it? Well, He does it just because He loves them so much. That's not what He says. No, he says, I did it because I wanted to protect the holiness of my name. And I did not want my name profaned by by what I was about to do. And so I delivered them anyway. Now here is God bringing an idolatrous people out into Egypt, out to Mount Sinai. And of course, Moses going on the mountain, giving them laws and rules. And now we have the second part of the story. And so, beginning then in verse 10, and going on down to verse 17, we see God's picture of the wilderness generation. So first the generation while they were in Egypt, now the same generation transfers into the wilderness as God delivers them and saves them and gets them going to the promised land. Verse 10. So I led them out of the land of Egypt and brought them into the wilderness. I gave them my statutes and made known to them my rules by which if a person does them, he shall live. Moreover, I gave them my Sabbaths as a sign between me and them that they might know that I am the Lord who sanctifies them. But the house of Israel rebelled against me in the wilderness. They did not walk in my statutes, but rejected my rules, by which if a person does them, he shall live, and my Sabbaths they greatly profaned. Then I said, I would pour out my wrath upon them in the wilderness to make a full end of them. But I acted for the sake of my name, that it should not be profaned in the sight of the nations in whose sight I had brought them out. Moreover, I swore to them in the wilderness that I would not bring them into the land that I had given them, a land flowing with milk and honey, the most glorious of all lands, because they rejected my rules and did not walk in my statutes and profaned my Sabbaths, for their heart went after their idols. Nevertheless, my eyes spared them, and I did not destroy them or make a full end of them in the wilderness. I want you to notice a couple of things here. Here again, we see the pattern of God's graciousness and mercy as He brings them out. And then He talks about what He gave them. Don't you notice two things that God gave them? He says, I gave them my statutes and my rules by which if a person does them, he shall live. 
Have you ever thought about God's commandments as a blessing and a gift? I think sometimes we look at God's commandments and we think, oh, I have to do that. Oh, I can't do this. Oh, I can't do what I want to do. And yet here God is saying, I even gave them my statutes. I gave them my commandments by which if a person does them, he'll live. What is God's intent? He says, I want my people to live. I want them to enjoy life. I want to give them the best. Remind you really of what Jesus said in Matthew 16, doesn't it? Verse 25, when he says, whoever tries to save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And so God is saying, I want to give them life. And they didn't. The other thing that is interesting there is the emphasis on the Sabbaths. And you'll notice this every single time, and you'll see it over and again throughout Ezekiel. When God condemns the people, He seems to always mention how they profaned His Sabbaths. Now you and I would look at that and go, I know that was a sin. I know it wasn't right for them not to keep the Sabbath. But there seemed to be so many other big things. So many other terrible things that they did for God to pick out the Sabbaths and say, you didn't obey my Sabbaths. Well, that's where we have missed the importance of God and His Sabbaths. Remember why they were to keep the Sabbath? Number one, it was a covenantal relationship and reminder of the kind of God they now serve. They served a master in God who commanded them to take one day a week off. Imagine going to your job one day and the boss looks at you and says, what are you doing here? You say, well, I, I, you know, I really needed to put some more work in. I just had a... And he says, if I ever catch you coming to work again, when I tell you to take a day off and I'm paying you, you're done. How would you like to work for a guy like that? Well, yippee. (laughs) That's pretty cool. He says, I'm going to take care of this and you're not going to come to work. And by the way, I better not catch you going home and working around the house. I want you to enjoy the day. You got me? Now there's God. And he says, that's a sign to the nations of the kind of God I am. And I expect you to spend this time with your family, with resting, with enjoying me, enjoying the relationship that you have with me. That's what I expect of you. And when you don't do that, you've forgotten that I delivered you out of Egypt. One of the beautiful things that you read in Deuteronomy 5.15 is that God said, I gave you the Sabbath to remind you that I delivered you from bondage. That's why you have it. You know, that doesn't change for us. Even though we don't have a Sabbath day per se, we have the greater Sabbath rest that we look forward to, as the Hebrew writer says in Hebrews 4. And in that Sabbath rest is a reminder of a God who is interested in giving us deliverance and giving us life and giving us rest. That's what He's interested in. He wants to bless us with that. And so when they don't do this, 
God brings it up over and over again that this was a sign to the nations of the kind of God that He actually is. And then notice in verse 18, He transfers now to the second generation in the wilderness. Alright, now remember them. First generation spends 38 years dying in the wilderness, right? You have 603,548 men of war who die and who knows that how many other elderly people who just died of old age while they were about out there. And only two men of war, Joshua and Caleb, actually get to the promised land. And in that 38 years, prior to the second generation rising up, you have all of them dead and a new generation, the 19-year-olds and under, all growing up during that time and ready for God to bring them in promised land. Now, if you're like me, I tend to think of that second generation. Well, now, they're the good guys. We finally got some good guys here. You know, there's the great ones like Joshua and Caleb, and they go in the land, and they conquer the land. And Wow, okay, finally. Here's a generation of Israel that are the kind of people that God is looking for. Well, look at verse 18. And I said to their children in the wilderness, Do not walk in the statutes of your fathers, nor keep their rules, nor defile yourselves with their idols. I am the Lord your God. Walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules and keep my Sabbaths holy that they may be a sign between me and you that you may know that I am the Lord your God. But the children rebelled against me. They did not walk in my statutes and were not careful to obey my rules. By which, if a person does them, he shall live. They profaned my Sabbaths. Then I said, I would pour out my wrath upon them and expend my anger against them in the wilderness. But I withheld my hand and acted for the sake of my name, that it should not be profaned in the sight of the nations in whose side I had brought them out. Moreover, I swore to them in the wilderness that I would that I would scatter them among the nations and disperse them through the countries because they had not obeyed my rules, but had rejected my statutes and profaned my Sabbaths, and their eyes were set on their father's idols. Moreover, I gave them statutes that were not good and rules by which they could not have life. And I defiled them through their very gifts in their offering up of their firstborn that I might devastate them. I did it that they might know that I am the Lord. Now here's a couple things that are important about that particular paragraph. First off, it's shocking, isn't it, to discover that these individuals that went into the land of Canaan, that went into the promised land, that conquered all of the nations in the promised land, that they brought their idols in. You remember Rachel? You know, when Jacob left Laban, and remember what Rachel did? She stole her father's idols. And when her father came objecting about it, she sat on a box and pretended that, you know, she was just at that point in her, in her cycle that she couldn't let anybody in that box and couldn't get up. And so she kept those idols. And those idols are something that she kept 
and the next generation and the next generation and the Egyptian generation and the wilderness generation and they never gave them up. Even during the days in which they were conquering the the nations before them. Isn't that something? That those idols... Whatever they were, whether Egyptian idols or passed down from generation to generation, they kept them hidden away. You know what that reminds me of? It reminds me of us. Sometimes we have our little idols. The things that we're most passionate about. The things that we think about the most. The things that mean the most to us. We hide them. We keep them stuffed away. And when we're really interested in getting, you know, something that we really want, we pull them out of our deep, dark closet and enjoy our idols. And that is exactly what they did. Oh, they weren't displayed before everybody else. They weren't put before the nations. They weren't, you know, paraded out in their, on their altars necessarily. But the idols were hidden and God knew about it. And God brings it up here. And do you notice again, did anyone know that God was ready to completely and utterly destroy the second generation? That He was ready to wipe them out and start afresh again? No. I remember that at Sinai, but not with the second generation. And here God says to the elders of Israel, nothing's changed. You're still doing the same thing. Were you a little confused by verse 25? When he said, I gave them statutes that were not good and rules that they couldn't have life and even gave them statutes that would defile themselves and even to the offering of their own firstborn. I kind of look at that and scratch our heads and went, wait a minute. I read all the way through Jeremiah where God said, I never came to my mind that you would offer your children in sacrifice. And this is what you're doing. And I'm going to defile Tophet. And I'm going to defile the gods of Molech and, and all these gods of the Ammonites and the Moabites. And what is he saying here that I gave them these idols? Ah, that was the perception that would have taken place by the nations when God just gave them up. He had just been fed up. Do you remember when the Rabsheki, remember that guy? The Rab Shechi during the days of Hezekiah, and he came and he had he had all the armies, you know, of Assyria, and he came and he surrounded the city, and the Rab Shechi called out on the walls and said, You know, you you guys have given up serving your God, and, and when you tore down all of his idols, all of his his altars and things like that. His perception was that when Hezekiah got rid of all the idolatry and went back to just serving Jehovah, his perception was that they'd given up on God. There's something that is very, very important for us to understand. There's an old-time song about this. The only Bible the wicked world will read is the one that's displayed by you and me. We are the way religion is seen in the world. Now you just ask yourself this question. We all know the answer. How does the world see God through religion today? It's pretty disgusting. Most people would look down on it. Most people would shake their head about what they would see. Especially just in religion. That must not be among us. 
That must not be. We must show the world who we are and what true religion is because no one is going to see God through a people who represent Him differently than what the Bible says. And so that is exactly what they did. God says, I gave them up. You did all these things that would not give you life. Now, we come to God's big pop to these elders. Verse 27. Oh, by the way, one other thing in this last paragraph. Do you notice how God said that I gave you my statutes and I told you to walk in them and be careful to obey them? But they were not careful to obey them. That is one of the keys. God will say that again in chapter 36 of Ezekiel. In the book of Deuteronomy, 20, 18 times in Deuteronomy, God commanded Israel to be careful to obey them. In this text, he condemns them. They're not being careful. And in Ezekiel 36, when he talks about us, the disciples, the Messiah, he says we will be careful to obey. What amazes me is the number of people today who call themselves Christians who actually say, I don't think that's important to be careful to obey the Lord. Why, after all, we have grace. God's not picky. What's careful? Be careful to obey Him because of what He has done. Now notice the answer. Verse 27. He says, Therefore, son of man, speak to the house of Israel and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, In in this also your fathers blaspheme me, by dealing treacherously with me. For when I had brought them into the land that I swore to give them, then wherever they saw any high hill or any leafy tree... There they offered their sacrifices, and there they presented their provocation of their offering. There they sent up their pleasing aromas, and there they poured out their drink offerings. I said to them, what is the high place to which you go? So its name is called Bama to this day. That word Bama or Bama, it basically means high place. And when they first set up their high places in the land of Canaan, God referred to those high places as Ben. And He says it's still called that way today. I gave you the name and you're still worshiping on Ben. Uh, I have to say that all of those who follow Alabama are probably the same situation. But uh, we'll leave that one for another time. But uh, now you can tell all those Bama fans, you know, you got you got them in the Bible and they're idols. That's what it is. <laughs> That's what you should see. So here is God saying, look what you've done. Now look at verse 30. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, will you defile yourselves after the manner of your fathers and go whoring after their detestable things? When you present your gifts and offer up your children in the fire, you defile yourselves with all your idols to this day, and shall I be inquired of by you, O house of Israel? As I live, declares the Lord God, I will not be inquired of by you. How many people today, and maybe sometimes us, have the idea that we can follow our idols, have our passions other than God, live for the passions of our own flesh, and then turn around when we're in trouble and want to inquire of the Lord. God says, I'm telling you, 
when you do that, I am not going to be inquired of by you. Here's this big long speech in which God basically said, all this time, way back from the time you were in Egypt to this day, 900 plus years, you have objected to my rules, you've profaned my Sabbaths, you broke my commandments, you worshipped every idol you could worship, whatever was set before you, you fell down before it, and then you're going to walk in front of me, and you're going to ask to be inquired by me? Get out! Can you just feel it? Wouldn't that be the way you would feel? Doesn't look like the story's going to end very well, does it? That's what I was thinking. The story just isn't going to end very well. Now look at verse 30, uh, 32. What is in your mind shall never happen. The thought, let us be like the nations, like the tribes of the countries, and worship wood and stone. Now here is God over and over again had this pattern throughout the story. God's graciousness, the people's rebellion, God's promise to destroy them, and then God relenting for the sake of His holy name. And He gets down to this and He says, I'm not going to be inquired of you. That's not what's going to happen. I am so fed up. And you're just going, boy, this is just not good. And then God says this next thing where he says, I'll tell you what, you know what's in your mind? You think you're going to change God's. God says, you think you're going to throw me out and change God's to God's that are wood and stone. And that thought that is in your mind that you're going to dump me and start worshiping the gods of wood and stone like all the nations do, you are going to, as my mother would say, you got another thing coming. That is not going to happen. I'm going to do something about that. You will never switch gods. I will be your God, and you're never going to worship those idols of wood and stone. I'm going to take care of that. Now, I get to this particular point, and I'm going, who does God think He is? How are you going to change a rebellious, terrible people like this? This is impossible. They're bums. (laughs) And as a matter of fact, when I think about it long enough, so am I. How are you going to do anything about this? If people want to worship wooden stone, they're going to worship wooden stone. God says, oh no, no, no. You're not changing God's on me. (laughs) You say, okay, give it to me, God. How are you going to do it? Verse 33. As I live, declares the Lord. That sounds like an oath to you. Mm -hmm. As I live, declares the Lord. Surely with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm and with wrath poured out I will be king over you you're not going to be worshipping some other god I'm going to be king over you I will bring you out from the peoples and gather you out of the countries where where you are scattered with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm and with wrath poured out Now, now first thing you want to notice is that is a parallel to what he did he talked about in the story earlier in the chapter Exodus, you see it? 
All of you who've been studying uh, prophets in the Old Testament, you've noticed God always predicting a new exodus. That's exactly what He does here. He says, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to try this all over again. I tried it once and brought you out of bondage and brought you out in the wilderness. I'm going to do it again. I took you into bondage. You're scattering all the nations. Now I'm going to gather you back and we're going to have another exodus. And notice what He goes on to say in verse 36, verse 35. And I will bring you into the wilderness of the peoples, and there I will enter into judgment with you face to face. See the echo? This is echoing what happened in the exodus out of Egypt. See that echo? I'm going to bring you out again. I'm going to bring you out. I'm going to bring you out in the wilderness again. And I'm going to deal with you face to face. All right, anybody ready for that one? Good. <laughs> you get a little trip, you know, a little shiver there. Did God deal with Moses face to face? Yeah. How'd that work out? Okay for Moses. So there could be some good things here. Could be some bad things here. Notice what he goes on to say. Verse 36, as I entered into judgment with your fathers in the wilderness of the land of Egypt, so I will enter into judgment with you, declares the Lord God. I will make you pass under the rod and I will bring you into the bond of the covenant. I will purge out the rebels from among you and those who transgress against me and I will bring them out of the land where they sojourn but they shall not enter the land of Israel then you will know that I am the Lord alright so I'm going to bring all the peoples out and I'm going to deal with you face to face and I'm bring you into a covenant and I'm going to save you with wrath poured out and you're going to pass under the rod alright that's a shepherd picture most of you understand that where the shepherd goes and his sheep pass under the rod and he determines whether they're his sheep or somebody else's and whether they're going to follow him and be okay or not. And he says, so I'm going to make my people pass under the rod and I'll differentiate between those who are the rebels and those who want to enter the covenant with me. And so that's how it's going to happen. And those who do not want to enter, I will have brought them out in the wilderness but they won't enter Israel. They're not going to get the promised land. You see? But they're not going to be worshiping wood and stone either. (laughs) I'm going to take care of that business right now. There will be none of them. Now watch what he does. Verse 38. Excuse me, 39. As for you, O house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, go serve every one of you his idols. Now hereafter and hereafter, if you will not listen to me, but my holy name you shall no more profane with your gifts and your idols. What God's message is there, I have a great calling for you. I've always had that great calling for you. I told you back in Exodus 19 that I would make you a kingdom of priests. That you would be my special possession. And that has been my calling. And I am going to create a people that way. But if you want to follow your idols, you go right ahead. But I'll tell you this. You'll never profane my name again. I'm going to remove that opportunity from you. The rebels are going to die in my new wilderness. They are not going to survive. Now verse 40. 
For on my holy mountain, the mountain height of Israel, declares the Lord God, there all the house of Israel, all of them, shall serve me in the land. There I will accept them. And there I'll require your contributions and the choicest of your gifts with all your sacred offerings. As a pleasing aroma, I will accept you. When I bring you out from the peoples and gather you out of the countries where you have been scattered, and I will manifest my holiness among you in the sight of the nations. And you shall know that I am the Lord. When I bring you into the land of Israel, the country that I swore to give to your fathers, and there you shall remember your ways and all your deeds with which you have defiled yourselves, and you shall loathe yourselves for all the evils that you have committed. Now suddenly when you get to that point, you're beginning to realize He's talking about you and me. And he says, what I'm going to do is I'm going to bring this new exodus. And I'm going to bring you from all these countries and nations where you've been held bondage. A picture of our bondage. And I'm going to bring you up onto my holy mountain. And we talked about this morning in the Bible class. What is God's, what's God's land promise? Mount Zion. You have come to a new mountain. You have come to a new land. You know, the land promise was never just a piece of dirt. It was never just some kind of area where, okay, you got this much and this much, east and west and north and south. It was security. It was rest. It was productivity without worrying about enemies ever taking it away. You and I live in that rest right now. We don't worry about somebody taking away our great inheritance that we have in Christ. We're not worried that somebody is going to be able to come in and destroy the kingdom that we're a part of or to take us into captivity again. None can touch us. Because if God is for you, who can be against you? And that's what he's pointing out. Notice a couple of things about this too. He says, when I bring you up to my holy mountain, after having you pass under the rod and bringing you out with a great and mighty hand and an outstretched arm, that's the same words he used with Moses coming out of the wilderness. What's God's great and mighty mighty arm? What's this outstretched arm? What is this power? It is in Christ. It is in the cross. And with that power of the resurrection, He brings us out of bondage. And he said, when that happens, you're going to give me your choicest gifts. Okay, now when you and I live our lives, are you giving God your choicest gifts? Yeah. That's what he's always required, isn't it? Now this lame stuff, <laughs> now those lame animals, choicest gifts. Every day, you and I wake up and we say, how can I give God my best today? How can I give Him my choicest gifts? Why? Because He's brought me out of that bondage. He saved me from all of that. 
The second thing that's interesting about the text is him saying that I did this to make my name known in the sight of the nations. What's Ephesians all about? Everything God has done is to the praise of His glory. Do you and I live so that the nations around us see God? And His name is glorified, not profaned. Is that the way we live? He says that's going to be the result of the salvation that I bring. All right, now the most surprising of all. In verse verse 44, And you shall know that I am the Lord. Alright, now, that little phrase, you shall know that I am the Lord, it is used a couple hundred times in the book of Ezekiel. They don't know that He's the Lord. They have been serving their idols for so long that Yahweh is just one of many. They don't know who the Lord is. And He says, alright, I'm going to do this, this, and this. And each time He says, and when I do it, you're going to know that I'm Lord. Now, here's His deal. You shall know that I am the Lord. When I deal with you for my name's sake, not according to your evil ways, nor according to your corrupt deeds, O house of Israel, declares the Lord God. And when I read that the first time, my knees buckled. You're going to know that I'm the Lord when you realize that I will deal with you according to my name and not according to your deeds. Wow. I didn't expect that to be the end of the story. Everything seemed negative up to that point. And then God says, I'm going to make it so that you'll never worship that wood and stone again that my name is going to be glorified just as I promised Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and here's how I'm going to do it I'm not going to deal with you according to your wicked deeds and your ways yes the rebels will be judged no doubt they will not be part of my people but my people are a people that I will deal with according to my name and not according to your ways and your corrupt deeds Have you ever, of course you have, doubted your salvation? Have you ever wondered, well, I just don't think God God could possibly save me. The first people He saved are the people who murdered Jesus. His greatest worker in the kingdom that we read about in the New Testament was a man who murdered Christians. And God promised over and over again, I'm going to save you for the sake of my name. And I'm going to deal with you for the sake of my name. And not because of your deeds. Instead, your heart will then be melted and changed. And you will, as verse 43 pointed out, remember your deeds and your evil ways and you'll loathe yourselves for the things that you have done. Remember that sinful woman in Luke 7? Remember how she fell at Jesus' feet and wept, soaked His feet with her tears, 
Remember the difference between her and Simon? If you're Simon and you're not touched by the presence of Jesus, now that's trouble. But if you're the woman and you're falling at His feet, asking for mercy on the basis of His his holy name and not on the basis of your deeds, He's made a promise. And that covenantable promise, He'll be left for you. The question is, will you fulfill your call? We have a great promise. And there couldn't be, I don't think, anything in the Bible that give us more confidence than those great words of how God will deal with us. If you're willing to submit to Him and if you have not done that, we urge you, please, look what God has done. We deserve every bit of wrath He could pour out on us. But He has not done that for the sake of His name. If we can help you, glad to do so while together we stand and while we sing.